Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read the whole chapter as we approach God's Word today as kind of a backdrop for what I hope God does in teaching us something today. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21 in 2 Corinthians 5, and then we're going to Ask God to help us understand that. This is what it says. Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth about our earthly tent and our heavenly dwelling. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent... We groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but we are is, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who raised, who him who for their sake they died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to ask you to pray. I ask my people back at our home church every time we open God's word, it is appropriate that you pray. And if that's new to you today, that you just utter a simple prayer. Say, God, I don't have a clue what you are going to speak to me today, but I'm open to you speaking. So you pray and I'll pray for us collectively as we gather around his word and desire to hear his heart this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that is truth that we rest under even when we don't understand it and we look to as supreme authority for, for life. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us now by the power of your spirit. Father, I know that every time a people gather around your word, 
we can glean from it and understand who you are and your heart a little bit better and further what you want us to do and how you want us to respond to it, how you want us to change. Father, I pray that all roads point to Jesus Christ this morning, that we would see him and that he would be exalted, that we would know of the payment that he made for each one of us and that we would desire to look at him as king. And Father, that you would be with us, you would rest your hand on us and that you'd speak to our hearts so that our lives can be transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, what happened in this event was tragic. Whenever somebody takes their life in the way that he took his life, it's tragic. And that's why we as believers need to understand this wasn't just a celebrity, it was a real person who has a real family. And whenever that happens, it's tragic. And so we need to be people that are conscious of praying for those situations. But again, this is not a message about him, but it is a message about how we shape or how our minds understand an event like this and what we can learn from it. We also know that this was a guy who struggled from deep, dark depression and apparently found no other way to end the pain but to do what he did. And I'm not an expert on the topic of depression, and I would tell you this, that in fact, I'm someone that, and the reason why that God really challenged me with all this to look to his word and really I was impacted by an event, I'm someone, not proud to say, but I've really struggled with understanding depression and its effects. I'm someone that comes from the camp not having dealt with it myself and the darkness and loneliness behind that and, and not understanding almost this attitude, and I confess this, of, well, if you just come to Jesus, you can just snap out of that. Not knowing that people that struggle with that it is a disease that, that it's not that easy to just snap out of. And so I've always struggled with it, and I feel like we need to be a people that understand that and how we respond to that a little better. What got me interested in, in the response was an event like this happening, and then I saw all these social media posts and all these blogs and all these Facebook posts and responses about his life and, and even... What our tendency as people, as judgmental people, is to now place him in one camp or another with his eternity. Which I thought was interesting too because that's not our business. That's not our our job to be the judge. And so I saw maybe some well-intended Christians and people that I knew loved the Lord and, and I thought understood the gospel and they would say things about placing his eternity in a certain situation. And that's not what this is about. In fact, it's about us not doing that under those circumstances because of what he did. They placed judgment on that. Now, I have no idea what his relationship was like with Christ. I just know that we need Jesus for eternal life and that we, we can't fully know that about somebody in its complete way. Only God and our hearts know where we stand with him. So that's not our business to do that. And so if you were one of those people that, that made a post regarding that or or it's, this is not as much a rebuke as a teaching of how we as the body of Christ ought to respond and what we can learn from a situation like this. And as I prayed about this, I got it down to these three things that I, I hope God teaches us through his word this morning. And the first, the goals being this. First, how can we rightly, as a people that want to follow and honor God, how can we rightly acknowledge and view depression? Knowing that it's real, knowing that it's dark, knowing that it's a disease, how can we rightly do that? Second, how ought we view death? How ought we as a people view death with a side question of this? How ought we as a Christ-honoring people 
view suicide. Third, what can we adjust in our thinking and what can we learn from this as we move forward with gospel thinking and and a Christ-following attitude as Christ-following people? How can we adjust our thinking and understand the gospel better in an event like this? And so that's my goal this morning. I want to try to tackle those three questions. The first being this, and using 2 Corinthians 5 as a backdrop. How can we rightly acknowledge and view depression? I know depression is real and it's dark. And some of you may have experienced that in seasons. And some of you may struggle with it on a daily basis. I have no idea what that's like. I've probably been pressed down in some different ways in some different seasons, but I have no idea to speak into what that might be like for you to function and try to function as a person that struggles with that. So I don't come trying to unpack that today. That is way beyond my pay level. I think for most it is. But I don't come and try to understand that. I'm confessing I don't, I don't understand it because I've never really experienced it. I just know that it's dark And I know that it's real. And I know that it's a disease. As I read some of these uh, blogs and I came across some different authors, some different pastors maybe that approached this, and, and one of them referred to it as thought cancer. And I thought that's a really good definition because it's 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 capturing the enormity of the disease. That it is, it is like what we would say cancer in someone's body. It is in their mind. And it's something that in a fallen world we're diseased with. And we can go towards a spiritual in that realm. And certainly Satan uses depression and circumstances to oppress us and depress us in that way. But we have to view it rightly and understand that this is a real thing. That, and I don't understand all the, whether it's circumstantial or chemical or whatever it is. But I know that it's real in a fallen world and Satan can definitely, like he does in all of our circumstances, he can compound it and he can magnify its power and presence. And when he does that, and when our mind runs to magnifying the power of our depression or circumstance around us, then God shrinks in his power in the way that we view him. And he becomes less of an option or less of a power And that's when we need to understand that, to draw rightly to him and know that Jesus has overcome that and he will always be the Jesus who overcomes that. I just know it's real. And when we look to the scriptures, we find depression in the life of David. We find some groans, and that's from our our text. We're going to get to that in a second. But we find this man, David, in the Psalms, gives us glimpses of what depression looks like in times in his life where he was struggling. He says things like this in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. If you struggle with that, you relate with that. And in Psalm 69, save me, O God, from the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary and crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. That is the power of depression. When it takes hold of our mind and our life and it gets us thinking, as it did for Robin Williams in that moment, this is too much. There's too much and God is distant and he's far. And there's too much for my life and I'm overwhelmed and I'm swallowed up by this moment and there's no hope. What I latched onto in that video was this 
echoing phrase that he spoke when she asked him about the last two years. And he said, there's a sadness, but there's a hope. And in depression, when we come to that topic, knowing it's darkness and realness, we know there is a deep, deep sadness. Whether that's circumstantial or chemical, whatever it is, there is a deep, deep sadness that people try to function with and lose sight of the hope. We find this in verses 2 through 4 in our text. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Now Paul is writing about a longing for heaven here and a groaning that there's got to be more to this life than this pain and sadness that we experience. And there's this groaning that happens. Paul says, there's this groaning in our beings that says, there's ha- there has to be more than the pain that I feel. And friends, we live in a fallen world where something like depression and cancer and all of these things are real because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin entered in and man fell into sin and every person, them from that moment and every person born on this earth was born into sinful flesh that was going to die. And all roads led to death and lead to death in our sinful nature. And so we understand depression is one of those things, and, and it is a disease that captures and leads us and gravitates towards hopelessness and sadness. And when Tony stood up here and said, but we are a people that believes the gospel, we believe that God intervened in that and sent Jesus, his son, to redeem sinful man. We read about that. That's the hope. But depression shadows that hope often. Now, I read this article, and I want to read it to you as sometimes, and you should know this, even preachers who like to speak and like the sound of their own voice and orate and all that stuff, sometimes there's just other people that say it better. And so I don't try to be one of those guys that tries to unpack this. And what was interesting about this, as I understood depression here, he was saying, you know what? If you're one of those people that doesn't understand depression and says, just Jesus, Jesus is the answer, He's saying Jesus is the answer for all life, but you're one of those people that says you just need to find Jesus and then you'll be healed. And he understood it in a different way. And so this is what he says. He says, God can heal physical and mental diseases, no doubt. Personally, I have prayed for people who have received miraculous healing. I've also prayed with people who have received miraculous grace that got them through one day at a time. If Robin Williams had died of cancer or heart disease, we might be more understanding. After all, many physical illnesses are incurable. Mental illness is also incurable. While mental illness can be managed and treated, it never goes away. For some reason, especially in the church, we often judge people who are mentally ill as making poor choices in their lives and somehow not fully trusting in God. It's almost as if physical impairments can't be helped, but mental impairments just require people to simply try harder. If trying hard cured mental illness, then mental illness would be cured because I don't know of anyone who tries harder to fit in or just function with people who struggle with these diseases. There are plenty of Christians who love Jesus with all of their hearts and have committed their entire lives to him, yet they are, they are schizophrenic, bipolar, clinically depressed, or smitten with other illness. There are also Christians who love Jesus and they struggle with diabetes, heart disease, and a number of other preventable conditions which are actually under their control. Their deaths may not be as imminent, but they certainly will come sooner than they should. But mental and spiritual matters seem to be more inseparable than physical and spiritual matters. Matters. The fine line between the soul and spirit is hard to navigate. Can our souls be saved while our minds are, in quotes, lost? 
That doesn't even make sense. We are whole beings, yet just as the Apostle Paul prayed for his tormenting illness to disappear, God offered grace instead of healing. It is hard for you and I to understand, I'm saying for me and maybe you, to understand that sometimes we just don't understand what somebody's going through. And sometimes, as much as I believe that truth, and I will preach that today and point you towards Jesus being the cure for life and the source of life, sometimes it's not just so easy to take all of our stuff and to just have it disappear. And I believe that God does heal, physically and emotionally. I believe that He does give miracles that way. I believe that he can change the chorus of both of those things. But that's not always what God does. I have a son that struggles physically and I know that God can heal him if he chose to do, but that's right now not God's plan. But what God does do is he gives grace. He gives grace in those moments. And that's what Paul was writing about when he wrote that My grace is sufficient for you. Despite all this stuff that's going on in your life, Jesus Christ has come into the world so that you might know grace. That you might receive mercy from God in that way. That that grace that we freely can live in in Christ sustains us in our circumstances. That grace that, that appears in our life is enough to move us through in the sadness And in the dark moments and in the times that we cry out and say, God, where are you? I don't see you. And he is this God who wants to lavish us with grace and say, it's sufficient. I know it feels distant at times. I know you struggle at times. But he wants us to draw into him, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Friends, I know depression is real. It's a disease. I know it's dark and it's lonely. And I know that we need to be understanding of that. Just as mental illness is just like physical ailment, we need to understand that it's a product of the fallen world we live in, and it's a product of sin. And the hope for all sin is Jesus. The second question that we need to target is this. How ought we view death? How ought we, as a Christian people, who want to lean into the words of the Bible, how ought we view death and what was interesting about the categories that, that or the, not the phrases that people put on social media as, in response, a lot of well-intended Christians said things like this, rest in peace. And we use that phrase, rest in peace. Rest in peace, Robin Williams. Rest in peace, loved one. And I thought to myself, do you know that you, that you should be making a concrete statement like that? Because what do you think he's doing? Or what do you think someone who has passed on is doing? Where do you think they are? And that's why we have to understand something about death. The first thing that we need to know about death is this, that it's a physical guarantee. This is what Paul says in our text today. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Paul is saying, you live in a tent. I live in a tent. Our tent is a weak tent, a fleshly tent, and you can guarantee from the moment that you're born, you are going to die. Sin in the garden has led us to death again. Uh, God came along after Noah and said, man's days should be no longer than 120 years. You know that you're born and you will die someday. You might die from natural causes. You might die from horrible disease. You might die from a whole slew of accidents or other things. But you can guarantee one thing that as soon as you are born, one day you will die physically. You live in an earthly tent. And Paul is saying, even though you live in a tent and it will be destroyed one day, you can have a heavenly home God has made a building for you in heaven. 
And so we know that it is a physical guarantee from fallen nature. We know that death is going to happen for all of us. And so you and I, from the moment that we're born, that is one thing. What do they say? Death and taxes, two guarantees. And I don't think the taxes are going away either, friends. So those are two guarantees that we can latch on to. But then we have this subject and this issue, and I'm going to deal with it quickly and frankly. Then we have this subject of suicide. How ought we view that? And here's what I would say about suicide. Number one, it is never the answer. It is tragic. It is never the answer. Ever. Number two, it is sin. It's murder. In fact, it's self-murder. So it is very, very, very much sin. But number three, and this is the one that I hope that you understand as someone that wants to honor God and follow Christ, it is not an unforgivable sin. And we need to understand that as a people. Verse 19 even shows us that in, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now we as a people sometimes have a lot of questions about that. And if you are a person that grew up in the Catholic church and you grew up with mentality where there's purgatory and other things and you grew up with suicide, that's in a category by itself. And I would say I'm going to challenge that against the gospel, what the gospel says. Because, because many well-intended Christians said, well, I don't know about a guy like Robin Williams now because, because that's, that's tough for me because he didn't have a chance to repent from that. And here's what the gospel says. It says that your sin is covered completely by Christ. Anything that you do. And suicide fits into that category as a trespass against God that it's saying here that he doesn't count that against us. Here's another example or a way to say that. Say that, that, that you, after this service today, after we worship and celebrate, are leaving this place and you harbor some angry thought or ill thought towards one of the people in this church or even me, and I'm like, why, you don't even know me, why would you do that? But you could harbor that on your way home and you get smacked by a bus and you're gone. And you've had no chance to repent from that sin. I would say, is that in the same category? I don't think it's any different. If you have come to Christ once in your life, once and for all, and proclaiming him as Lord and Savior, and giving him your life and saying, God, I believe that you have sent him for my sin personally, that you died on the cross and shed your blood for me and my sin personally, then God says, then you are redeemed, and, you, and your trespasses are forgiven, and that Christ himself has become your righteousness. And that's once and for all. And so we have to understand that in a mindset that says, this is not in a category, we can't do that with different sins. We can't say, well, he's a murderer, and they're this, and they're this, and put them all in different buckets. All of our sin is in one bucket. And it's horrible towards God, and it's against God, and his holy nature, and it has a wrath and a punishment on it for that sin, and that freedom is in Jesus that he gives us to cover that punishment. And we need to celebrate that as a people. In other words, our salvation is not based on our perfect repentance, but on our perfect Savior. And we have to lean hard into that. So if we confess our sins on church on Sunday and slip into something else on Monday or even Sunday afternoon, we trust heavily in the grace that saves and the grace that has given freedom, freedom to us. If we know that all that's required of us is salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, then that's all that we can give. And that's what I desire for you to know today. 
So that's one part of how we ought to view death. The second part is this, is that death is a physical reality, but what happens from that moment of physical death is we belong in eternal consciousness. And that's the thing about someone like Robin Williams. He is existing somewhere in eternal consciousness. I told you, this is not about where that is for him. I don't know. My hope is that he found Jesus Christ in his life. But that we as a people exist in eternal consciousness. We continue on. Verse 16 tells us this in our text. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. You and I ought to be people that hold that mindset. We regard no one in physical reality in the flesh anymore. We regard them as people with a soul that exists in eternal consciousness. One thing for sure in a physical tent that you will die in a physical tent. The other thing that when you are born, God has born a soul that exists from that point on into eternity. That point on, eternal consciousness. You are aware in a soul, spiritual state and in some kind of existence in that way. And we need to regard people as that. The moment someone's life on earth ends, it immediately continues. And when you and I look at people, which is why the gospel is such an urgent thing, we need to regard people as souls and not just, oh, he was a good person or she was a good person. We need to regard them as souls that exist in consciousness in one eternity with God or one eternity separate from God. And that's why the gospel is so crucial. And that's why if you're here today, it is so crucial that you understand that you have a soul that either exists with God and guarantee by the promise of his spirit or you are apart from God. There's one thing for sure that we know that needs to happen as Paul writes about so that we can know for sure that we exist on in consciousness with God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says it in verse 5 here. He says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We learn that we need to, at some point in our physical life, meet this Jesus and be born again. When Jesus met Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus had the same question, how can I gain eternal life? How can I know that I can have life with God forever? And Jesus said, you must be born again. In other words, you must be regenerated and renewed. God has to do some work by his spirit in you that is not of yourselves, not anything that you can please God, but he has to give you a new heart. And of course, Nicodemus, we know, was confused by that at first, and he's like, I don't know how that works. And later he came to meet the grace of Jesus. He bumped into that, and God, by his Spirit, overwhelmed him and changed him and renewed him and regenerated him. And from that moment on, his security was in heaven forever. Which is why all of us need to come to this moment in life where we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and God does this wonderful work by putting a new heart in us. And from that moment, we have security in heaven that consciousness with God and worshiping him forever and falling at his feet forever and the freedom from all pain and sadness, no more tears, no more sadness, all of that from Revelation. And we guarantee this. We are guaranteed this amazing new body, which I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to. Not so impressed with mine all the time. And God grants us peace and eternal joy. And this world has nothing for us anymore. And that's the moment that we should long for. But when we say with great confidence, rest in peace, I don't know how we can say that in a situation like that unless we know for sure. Because we know that in eternal consciousness, you are either restful and joyful or you are still lonely 
and painful. Look at verse 10 and 17. This is what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then again in 17. But therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So for an act like Robin Williams committed, he is perhaps resting in peace if he came to know Jesus as Savior, if he came to know Christ, and Christ made him a new creation. And he is joyfully resting. But if he did not make that decision in life, then he still remains in loneliness and sadness. And that is the tragedy of something like that. That's the one side. But the joy on the other side is that even in sadness, even in darkness, even in the moments of weak faith in our life, if we have trusted in Christ, he has given us a new heart and we are a new creation in him. The old has passed away. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of what God did at the cross when he gave us Jesus. That's why we celebrate here as a people today. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, our sin, our disgusting sin against God, against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, what God is doing in restoring and redeeming us as a people. So that's what we ought to understand about death. We ought to regard people as souls and not in the flesh and know that if we have made a decision in this life, that that grace is what saves us. The third thing is what can you and I, what can we do to adjust in our thinking and what can we learn from this as we move forward as gospel-thinking, Christ-following people? I'll just leave you with these seven things. From now on, we must not regard anyone according to the flesh. We must all see all souls as eternal. You must see other people that way. You must see other people that they are a soul that I can impact and influence. You must see yourself that way, which is why the gospel is so important, of premier importance. And you must look at all the people that God has placed you around and view them that way. That's how we ought to view people. That's what Paul said. We regard no one longer in the flesh. We used to look at Christ that way, but knew and learned, and they did over time. And even after his death, I think they learned how special Jesus was and how he was God's divine son. Because they knew that this power and this this grace that came from this man was different. That he existed with God from the beginning, that he was the word and the word was with God, and the word was always. And, and this, this mind explosion that they must have had, these disciples, this early church, with who Jesus was. And it says, we regard him as in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. We should regard everyone as a soul that is in existence from the moment they're born and will exist in eternity apart from God or with God. We must view people that way. The second thing, we must know then, as a Christ-following people, how a soul can be saved redeemed, regenerated, and reconciled. You and I must know how to articulate the gospel to people. If we regard them as souls and we have the answer, you and I must be prepared to share that hope with others. You and I must be prepared to share the hope of Christ in a sad and dark and lonely world with others. You and I must be able to know and articulate to others scripture on how one is saved and redeemed and reconciled, and that is necessary, that it's not by works That it's not by trying to please God. It's not by trying to 
somehow muster enough strength to get out of the guilt of your own sin. Paul says in Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Why would you put that yoke of slavery back on? It's not out of our power that we have saved ourselves. He says you need to shed the guilt that you still hold on to. And I believe many in this room probably still hold on to some guilt from sin. You need to shed that and live in the freedom of Christ. Why would you put that back on yourself? You need to shed that and live for him. And you need to be able to articulate that to somebody else and help them towards that message and point them towards Jesus and illuminate who Christ is. And, and as I say to our people all the time, be a window to Jesus, not a door. Let him be seen through you. You must be able to do that. You must also have an eternal perspective and aim at the right thing. While God has forgiven our trespasses, this is what it says in verse 6 through 9, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So there's our security. We know that with great surety that we are with the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, and this is the phrase, we make it our aim to please him. Whereas we are freed from the guilt of our sin and from the trespasses that God does not hold against us, we ought to make it our aim to please him. So there is a life that we ought to pursue of holiness and pleasing life, a pleasing life to God. So we're not off the hook in the sense of all sin, we can do whatever we want, it's a license to sin. We ought to make it our aim to please God, whether at, in the body or with the Lord. And we ought to groan for that, our sureness of heaven. We ought to hold a perspective that this world has nothing for me. We ought to be drawn into the hope of eternity in that regard. But while we were here, we have work to do. We ought to aim to please God in everything we do. We ought to desire a life of righteousness and holiness. Knowing that Christ is our righteousness, but you and I make decisions every day that either aim to please the Lord or aim to please ourselves. And it's as simple as that. And we ought to make it our aim to please God. Holding an eternal perspective that that influences. We also must do this, number four. We must persuade others towards the cross of Christ with great urgency. This is what it says in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. You and I ought to be passionate about persuading others towards this message of hope in the cross of Christ. You and I must do that with urgency. Do you know that God has sovereignly placed you wherever he has placed you as a light to people with that message? If you understand the hope of the gospel, he has placed you whatever workplace and whatever department and whatever profession with whatever gifting and whatever family, he has placed you with that so that you can persuade others towards the cross of Christ. And he says, I have redeemed you and renewed you so that you can bring this message of hope to people. And sometimes you and I just don't view it that way. We got put in this horrible family with these strange people. And I don't know about you, but I'm the only normal one in my family. And so I feel the same way you do. But I know that we're put in this place at this horrible place of work, which I don't even, it's just a job and I don't even know why I'm here. And God has placed you there to persuade others. How you do that is up to him. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that. But I know that you need to show the love of Christ and you know to be prepared with words and scripture on how to do that and love them towards Jesus. But God has placed you there to persuade others, to say, you know, there is a God who loves and saves and you are a soul that needs him because this life is tragic and dark and lonely, but the hope of heaven is glorious. That should be our heart. 
Number five, you and I must not be so quick to pass judgment. And I learned this and I learned it all over again on things we have no idea about. You and I as a people should not be so quick to place judgment on depression when we don't know much about it. If you struggle with it, you have a little more freedom to speak into that. We have no place to place judgment on where a soul exists in eternity. I use this example again. I use it about my wife all the time. I'm 99.9% sure she's going to heaven because she displays the fruit of the gospel and the spirit, and I just see that in her life. But only her and God know her state. And so you and I can know some security when we see some things, but you and I are not the judge. You and I are not gifted in that way to make a call. So you and I cannot make concrete statements. The one thing we can do is pray that God's mercy reigns on everyone. Number six, we must be careful about how our theology responds to situations like this, to suicide, and the words we say. Our words are really important. And we find this in verses 13 through 15. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in a right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died who for their sake died and was raised. You and I need to be very careful in the screams of a life lived for others that we respond with graciousness and the love of Christ compels us and controls us. That's what Paul is saying there. You and I, when we respond to somebody who has an opinion about this or respond to somebody who lives in a certain disease of darkness, you and I ought to be controlled and compelled by Christ in that moment. That his love ought to just be so rich in us that we are compelled to persuade others and lead other people toward him and that we ourselves are controlled by that love. All that we say and all that we think is controlled by the love that he offers and gives us freely. That's how you and I ought to live with a great urgency for others. Another thing that he said in that video that was so profound as it echoes in eternity is that all that matters is, is other people and serving a loving God. That's all that matters is what God is doing in your relationship with him personally and how he uses that to influence all of your other relationships in love. In other words, you and I ought to love people well through everything, even the things we don't understand. The love of Christ compels us. And seventh, we must be a church that helps the sick. Verses 20 through 21, and then we got the whole text covered. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I are ambassadors of Christ. You and I are called to be a people in a church that exists to help the sick. You and I belong to a family of believers that ought to view church as a hospital for very sick and diseased people, both physically, mentally, and for certain spiritually. And you and I ought to be desiring to belong to a church that says, we welcome in everybody. We want to help you. We want to walk alongside you. We want you to shed, have, see the shed light on the cross so that you can know there's a hope for you here. In all your darkness, and all your pain, we are not a religious, pompous, holier-than-thou people. We should never view the church that way. We should view it as a very sick place with broken people that come in and find redemption at the cross. 
and welcome all towards that. So you and I should be a people that wants to put our arms around people that are hugging that hug them in a way that says, we know you're struggling and hurting and, and, and your life is messed up and we don't understand that all, but we know that Jesus gives you grace. We ought to be a church with that mentality. We have to be a church with that mentality. So many people walk away from the opportunities that God gives us with broken and hurting people. You and I are broken and hurting people. No matter how well our life looks like it's put together, you and I are broken and hurting people. And that's got to be the focus of a church. That's the church I want to belong to. I will leave you with this. I read this as well and feel like it's just well said. What would Jesus say to Robin Williams or you, given the opportunity? I believe he would echo back his very words. There is a sadness, but there is also a hope. The actor was clearly a man who struggled for self-worth. He was significantly overweight as a child with few friends and was voted least likely to succeed in school. When accepting his Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in 1997, he said, most of all, I want to thank my father up there, the man who, when I said I wanted to be an actor, he said, wonderful, just have a backup plan. Jesus would want Williams to know that his heavenly father knitted him together in his mother's womb and gave him the amazing intellect and comedic gifts which made him famous. The comedian was right. You're only given a little spark. You mustn't lose it. Jesus want him to, would want him to know and he would want you to know the source of that spark. And he would want Williams to know that his significance could not be based on his performance or popularity, but on his father's unconditional love. The comedian once explained, I started doing comedy because that was the only stage that I could find. In truth, we are each given a stage before an audience of one. He cheers for us and accepts us in Christ, no matter what the critics say. Most of all, Jesus would want him to find the hope in his Father's love and grace. Williams once called comedy acting out optimism, but optimism doesn't have to be an act. In Christ, we can find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I don't know if Robin Williams ever received the significance and the unconditional acceptance and hope offered to him by Jesus, but I do know that the Lord offers these gifts to you today. This is what it says in John 3 as I close. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the Jesus that God offers you today. This is the Jesus that we as a people can run to again today, falling into his arms, coming to him as broken sinful people and accepting his warm embrace for our lives. That is the hope that we have security in. You have a chance to respond to that today if you've never made that decision, to come to him and know that he is the great healer and redeemer and reconciler, that we are persuading others as a people towards that message of the cross. I want to pray for us. I want to use this time to respond by taking the elements in communion and just quietly praying and praying for others and that you would do that now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace at the cross. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to each of us. Father, we thank you for your word that we can understand it better each day and for this time that maybe you've taught us to understand a little bit better about who you are and maybe about ourselves, where our soul exists. And Father, if there's a person in this room who has an unsurety about that, that they'd never made a decision to follow Christ, that they would make that this moment and not wait another second, repenting of their sin, coming to you, a holy God, confessing 
they've sinned against you and acknowledging that Jesus Christ was sent for the purpose of redeeming that sin and paying for that on the cross. That the blood that was shed is redemptive blood. And it's blood that we need to acknowledge as a people. That Jesus is Lord and Savior. He's my Lord and Savior. And acknowledge what he did for me and that he not only died but rose victoriously over that sin and shame so that we could have new life with him in heaven. Father, that is why we take communion. That is why we remember to celebrate what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. That he is not in the grave any longer. And Father, that we as a people can have freedom. That the sin that controls us at times and that we run towards in moments of weak faith does not control us any longer. It does not hold us in bondage any longer. We can be free from that in Christ. And so, Father, may all come to you by faith. May all receive the gift of your Son, Jesus, by repenting and fully trusting by faith that you are the God who saves. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that we as a people are missional in our mindset, that we would regard no one longer in the flesh, but regard people that exist with you. May we find surety of our salvation for those that have placed their faith in Christ, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive. May you be praised and may Jesus be exalted. And we pray these things in his name. And all God's people said,